What's up, podcast listeners? On this episode of the podcast, I'm hanging out with Robin Daniels. Robin Daniels honestly has worked at some of like the coolest companies in the world. Salesforce, WeWork, LinkedIn, Matterport, plenty of others. And I'm just very thrilled, excited, and just was shocked at his willingness, his energy, his fire. One of my good friends and mentors, Wade Burgess, calls him a breath of fresh air because he is just a joy. He's positive. He's fun to chat with. And I just absolutely love this podcast. Robin Daniels is currently the chief marketing officer for Matterport that just announced a public offering, went public, and just doing some amazing, amazing, amazing things. And so, Robin, just want to say thank you for your energy. Thank you for the man that you are. Thank you for the wisdom, the fun, the joy, just everything that you do for the world. You're not only just shaking things up in the business world, but you're just an absolute dream of a person to talk with and have a guest, have as a guest on the podcast. So Robin, thanks for being you. Keep changing the world. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys this podcast as much as I did. Robin, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you, man. I'm excited to be here, Matt. So we were, we were bantering a little bit beforehand. And of course, all small talk starts with weather. So I'm dealing in uh, West Michigan, a little snowfall. Where in the world are you? I am coming to you live from Copenhagen, Denmark, where I just moved to a few months ago. I, and I've been living in the U.S. for the last 20 years ago, but we decided to move as a family to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark a few months ago, where I'm originally from. Uh, but we don't have any snow yet. It is promised for this week, so we'll see. It's Now it's just cold, gray, dark, and rainy, <laughs> which is <laughs> often how winters are here. Well, you, you, when you lived for 20 years in the U.S., you came from the Bay Area, yeah? That's right. That's right. So, you know, you go from a lot of sunshine, perfect weather, really, really remarkable weather in San Francisco to gray, you know, cold and snowy. So I'm sure you're just living very positively, right? That's right. That's right. I think, you know, I've always been the kind of person that says that weather is not going to dictate uh, my outcome or my mood. Now, having said that, of course, you know, when you have sunshine every day of the year, it's easy to say that. Uh, but but in general, I think, you know, you you sh as a person really take the weather with you. I mean, there's there's a saying here in Denmark, there's no such thing as bad weather. There's just bad planning. Right. And so, <laughs> so I, think, I think that's a good analogy, because, I mean, if you optimize your life ba based on the weather, you're going to be in for a rude awakening, especially if you live in a climate where weather is really unpredictable like it is here in Denmark. You know, it's so true you say that the only time I think I get affected by weather is like in Michigan, we deal with it gets like it stays dark pretty late in the morning and it gets dark pretty late at night. So actually at night, I don't mind that it gets dark because it kind of forces me to wind down and I'm kind of firing on all cylinders probably too much. Right. So it forces me to wind down, but I don't love that. Like, so this morning I was up at like between five 30 and six and it stayed dark until like eight 30. And I don't love that. Cause it's just like, let's get the day going. And I don't know why sunshine sort of forces that, but I, I know what you mean. Same here. It gets, it gets light about eight 30 in the morning. Here. And I will tell you yesterday, I went for a, a long run. I finally signed up for a, a marathon later this year. I'm hoping it'll happen, but we'll see. But I signed up for one and I figured that's a good way to keep me motivated. So I went my, for my first training run yesterday did about, I think about 10 miles or so outside and man, it was cold. I, I was not dressed appropriately for it. I need to go get some winter gear. So yeah, there, there, there is no such thing as bad weather. It's just how you dress, I think is really what it comes down to. <laughs> that's, that's both physically and metaphoric, I'm sure too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> 
Well, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something that probably is gonna make you think I'm a psychopath. But I uh, so I played I played college lacrosse for a year. So I was like relatively you know athletic growing up, playing sports, whatever. Not I'm like five four and like a little bit rounder. So I'm not a big long time runner. So throughout most of my life, I think the most I've ever run was three miles. Mm-hmm. But I was hanging out with my cousin who uh, was a track star at Harvard, and one of the days we were. Uh, smack talking a little bit. And he had a buddy who just kind of arbitrarily decided to go run a, a, a marathon. So we we might have had, you know, a couple glasses of wine the night before and, you know, a, a little bit of pizza. And I was like, you know what, screw this. I think I could go run a marathon. So the next day, mind you, I'm again, don't have long strides, not in great endurance shape. And I've never run more than three miles. So I hopped on a treadmill and I, I ran I did. I decided to do 26.3 miles and it took me like five and a half, took me like five and a half hours to do. And I, I'm pretty sure I, I, uh, got foot fractures in both of my feet afterwards, but I, I'm proud to say that I've done one marathon and it'll probably be the only marathon I've ever done in my life. Well, the fact also that you did it on a treadmill. Oh my God, you are a hero. I mean, that, that is really hardcore. The monotony of it I've done. So so I'll tell you, I started this tradition. I turned 35 in 2013. And I started a tradition and I said, okay, for every year of my life, I'm going to run a marathon, just one, because it requires a lot of training. You can't just go out and run a marathon. I think if you're in good shape and you're a decent runner, you can probably go out and run a 10K or maybe even a half marathon if you just run regularly. But running a half marathon or a full marathon, it's really hard to, it's just the distance is so long. You need, you need proper training because your body's going to run out of fuel. So I started this tradition in 2013. And it's not because I'm the fastest or the best or anything. It's just a matter of like setting myself a goal and saying I can do it. And it's become this ritual that I've done one now every year. And the only year I didn't do one, honestly, was, was last year because of COVID, because the races I was signed up for uh, ended up being canceled. So I'm probably going to have to do two this year. But the, the, the things that you learn when you do this about yourself and the mental struggle, there's always a point in any race where you kind of go, why am I doing this? <laughs> or, or what's in it? Like, am I insane? Or you just kind of want to quit? And that mental struggle and that mental barrier you have to overcome to continue putting one foot in front of the other. I think it's just, to me, it's been such a good metaphor for life. And I think it's given me some of the fortitude and resilience that I think it's very hard to teach people. And you know, I have a son who's 14. And it's one of those things where I think to myself, how do I teach my kid grit and resilience? And, and there's really no easy way to teach it. I think you have to go live it. And, you know, through various things, either work struggles, family struggles, physical struggles, like a marathon. And so for me, it's just become this metaphor of just like every year I have to set myself this goal. I have to overcome somehow because you also have to train for it. You can't just go out again and, and just say, okay, tomorrow I'm going to run one. So it requires the preparation, the mental practice, the physical, certainly strength and practice to get there. And, and it's just become a ritual. I'm excited to do one this year. We'll see if it happens because of the COVID. Uh, but but, but der- certainly um, this year, I'll have to make up for, for losing it last year, unfortunately. You know, if you if you were to have, re- like, if we were to chop up what you just said in reference to a marathon and you remove the term marathon, I think you could word for word replace it with startups. Yeah. Because I think there's so much truth to that as well, too. Like, just just the requirement. I mean, and also, like, I think it's, like, it's such a good life metaphor as well, too. And I love the fact that you do it not necessarily to, like, win a gold medal or win any award or anything like that. But it's just purely, like, the 
recurring training and mental discipline of like setting yourself up to do it, taking all the time that it needs. It's not sexy. It's probably not fun at all, but then actually accomplishing that and what it teaches you, I think is remarkable. It truly is. And and I think your startup metaphor is so spun on, you know, I've been been in a few startups right now. I'm in a, what I would call a scale up. We're about 250 people at Matterport where I'm the CMO, but I've been in small companies where I was, you know, one of the first 10 employees in there. And just the, the, the fortitude you have to have in order to make progress is astounding. I have so much respect for entrepreneurs or people who go start companies, especially the ones who really don't know what they're getting into. Because in startup land, it's, you take two steps forward, things are going well, and then you get smacked in the face and you get you know, a big setback. Either funding is not coming through, a customer is not happy, you lose key talent, a launch doesn't go well, the product breaks, there's always something that happens. And the fortitude you have to have in order to make progress is just astounding. And there, there's there's really, it's very hard to read about it, you know, either on LinkedIn or in articles or in books. You certainly can. I think you can get, you can prepare yourself a little bit, but but you're, you're absolutely right. You know, for a, a startup, it is absolutely a marathon. There's no sprints. You will have many sprints within that life of a startup. Of course you will, but it's really a marathon. And you, know, you, you shouldn't go into a startup with the idea that, you know, it's going to be easy or it's going to be simple or everything's going to go smoothly. It never does. I remember when I joined Vera in 2014, I was employee number eight, you know, it's the first business hire it was all engineers. And then it was me to come in and, and organize, you know, marketing sales and everything else. And, you know, certainly there was a lot of like figuring out the strategy, the fundraising, hiring practices and so on. But there was also other stuff. I had to go put together Ikea furniture, make sure that there was toilet paper in the toilet. You know, all the things that you have to do that doesn't sound very glamorous, but just start part of a startup, an entrepreneur's life. It's also what builds the, the organization in a fun way that shows that everybody's accountable. And I'm excited to see all the entrepreneurs out there who are getting that at a much quicker age, I think. Than, than what happened you know, like 20, 30 years ago. Well, that's why, you know, so that's one of the things, and I want to dive in a lot more to your background in a second, but that's that's one of the things that like on, on my LinkedIn, I'm, I'm trying to do as much as I possibly can to encourage people to jump into a, a business or a startup in some way, shape or form. Again, obviously assume that they're interested in it, but like, so I'm 26 and I've been in I've been running a business in one way, shape or form for the last decade. And regardless if it all fails or it all succeeds, whatever, the lessons that it teaches you is absolute, like you, you cannot replicate it. You cannot learn it unless you're in it. And what it's taught me both good and bad and tough lessons. And, you know, like you just said, you were the CMO or you were one of the first hires in the business, but yet you were putting toilet paper on the, you know, in in the bathroom or you, you know, you were doing all these, these jobs that you had no idea that maybe even needed to be done by somebody, but you just decided to do it. That's to me, I think the lessons that are so undescribable to learn or undescribable to like teach somebody until you just go and do it. And that's, and anyways, I, 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 I think you hit, you hit on the, I think the most valuable lesson you probably can have, I think either in life or probably in business too. And that is, you know, all you can control is your effort. You can't control the outcome. That's true. You know, when you're running a marathon, it's true when you're doing a startup, you should do everything in your can to, to put in your best effort, to create the best product that people will love, to hire the best team possible, to, to optimize for happiness and success and all those things. But at some point, there are just things you can't control. And I mean, I think 2020 is a perfect example of that. Talk about things you can't control all at once. <laughs> all at once, exactly. It all kind of all hit at once. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just... 
to me, it's always been about that. You know, as long as you can look yourself in the mirror and say to yourself with pride and integrity that you're doing the best that you can, given the circumstances and the knowledge that you have and the resources that you have, there's really not much more you can do. That doesn't mean that you can't have aspirations and you shouldn't aim super high. Of course you should. But at some point, there will be things that are just outside of your control. And so it's, it's, it's a matter of like learning to be okay with that. I think that certainly took me a while. You know, I think, you know, when I was younger, I certainly wanted to plan for every eventuality and it's just nearly impossible. I mean, look at my, my history at going to WeWork as the CMO. You know, I came in at the height of the hype around uh, WeWork. It was such an exciting company to go into. When I spoke to my colleagues at that point in time, at the end of 2018, about which companies they'd love to work for, so many of them said, if I could be... CMO at WeWork, that would be a dream job. So I ended up, you know, going to WeWork at the height of the the, the hype cycle. Everyone loved it. You know, it was growing like crazy. Money was flowing to the company. And then, of course, having it come crashing down so publicly, it's not like anything that it, you could have planned for or anybody really knew was going to happen. So you, you had to roll with it and do the best that you could under the circumstances that you had. But that was certainly one of those things where it's just it was such a clear example to me. Of, you know, I don't think it was anything that the team did specifically. There were just a lot of factors that that went into why that happened. And of course, we can go into a detailed analysis of that. You know, and there has been lots of that written already. But that was certainly one of those lessons for me is just you know, wake up every day. You know, make sure that you know you're, you're doing as best as you can for yourself, for your team, for the company, and everything else is going to be noise at some point. So I definitely want to dive into the WeWork story um, in, 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 a, in a little bit as well, too. And I'm sure people, whatever, obviously, you're comfortable sharing, will love to hear that. Yeah. I think one of the, you know, as, as you just alluded to, like, your effort is the only thing that matters because you can't control the outcome. <laughs> you know, I... I uh, so I've, I've gone through a couple rounds of funding, uh, just predominantly with angel investors. And one thing that is a signaling factor to me is when an, an, a potential, quote unquote, investor wants to see three to five years out projections mm -hmm. with a company at our stage, I kind of take a step back and I'm like, that's probably not the person I want to be working with right. because quite frankly, I can put this together. You know, and I know this is complete crap mm -hmm. and it's not real and everything's going to go to hell in this plan. It could be way better, but right. this plan is all going to go to hell. And so to me, I've always just, I've, I've just kind of laughed when I've, when I've seen those and obviously want to be appropriate. And, you know, I understand the question, but as in a startup, if you're accurately predicting five years out, you're probably not uh, setting that lofty of goals. <laughs> no, exactly. And really what they want to hear is just a standard formula, of, you know, double, 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 triple, triple, or whatever it is. Triple, triple, yeah. double, 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 right? I think that's the standard formula. So that's really what they want to see. They're like, if you can check that box, great. <laughs> Prove to me that you know that rule. That's it. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so let's 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 dive in a little bit to your to your background. I'd, obviously, you've touched on the WeWork uh, side a little bit, and we'll we'll dive into that. But uh, would you mind just giving me a little bit of the life story? No, no, of course. So I was born and raised in Denmark, uh, and my mother and father were like the traditional super hippies, both children of the '60s. So I grew up in very progressive, liberal, hippie-ish values. My, my, both my parents write self-help books, you know, so you can kind of get a picture of, of, of my background a little bit. Is, uh, is like US, is US hippie and Denmark hippie the same? Yeah, so, so, the, so I'll tell you the story. So my mother's actually from America. She was born and raised in Washington and uh, DC area. And, and she, she fled America in the 60s because of the Vietnam War with her then uh, husband, 
They get, they, oh, this they, is they, like they, real stuff. This is like, yeah, I love this. <laughs> they, they traveled around the world, Asia, uh, Africa, Europe, you name it. And at some point they, they decided to split up. And, uh, and you know, long story short, my mom ended up meeting my dad, who's Danish. And they fell in love and they moved to Denmark and, uh, and they had three kids. So I have two older brothers. I'm the youngest of three. And so, so uh, we grew up, you know, in, in Denmark in a very hippie-ish uh, household you know, where we, we did not have a lot of material things. We were very poor, actually. But we had a lot of love, I would say, from, from, uh, especially from our mother who, who loved her three kids. Um, you know, my parents got divorced early on. And so, uh, you know, my mom ended up marrying a different guy, uh, the third marriage. And this guy, he became really a, a strong father figure for me uh, in the sense that he taught me a lot about computers and the power of technology. He was himself a computer programmer. And this was in uh, the end of the 80s. And so I really got into computers. I would tinker with it all day. You know, I would, I would put my own computers together and, and everything else uh, with, the, with the parts I could scrounge around and I could kind of get donated to me and so on. And so I would just like tinker a lot with computers. And I got pretty good at it, you know, through, by his, his, his guidance. Uh, and I knew then that I really wanted to get into the computer industry and this, into te- technology industry. And, you know, in the early 90s, I started seeing this amazing trend happening in Silicon Valley of all these incredible entrepreneurs um, just starting companies. It didn't really matter who you were, where you're from, what background you had, what school you went to. You know, as long as you came with a great idea and the, the, the work ethic to make anything happen, you know, you saw all these companies having a tremendous impact on the world. And I thought to myself, I want my life to be that way. This exciting adventure with like-minded individuals who are making a difference in the world. Then, you know, I, I started studying in Denmark. I graduated. Great, graduated. Robin, real, real quick on that. Was there uh, like when you, when you thought about like joining in the technology that was making a difference in the world, was there a company that was specifically of inspiration to that? Or was it just the general like buzz and idea of what was going on? Yeah, I would say at that point in time, you know, I, uh, I was really impressed with Microsoft. I was really okay, impressed cool. with Apple, really impressed with Netscape. Uh, I thought it was doing incredible things. I loved Intel at that point in time. Uh, so yeah, they, it was mostly the bigger ones. I mean, it was hard at that point in time because the internet didn't really exist. So you didn't really know about the many startups that probably were there, but you didn't really read about them as much because they didn't really have a way to get found or, or an audience in that way. And so I, you know, I, so I, I just love technology and I, and I fell in love with it. And I read this book called Microsurfs by Douglas Coupon, one of my favorite books of all time. And it's about four friends. I think it was written in 93 or 94. It was, it was about four friends who live in Seattle, who work at Microsoft, and they're kind of like not happy with their jobs. And they end up leaving to go to Silicon Valley to start their own company. And it's about the struggles and successes and the friendship and camaraderie that they build during this, this struggle of building at their own company. And you know, they're super geeky, they're introverted, they're nerdy, but they're, 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 they're all there for each other. And I just loved it. I've read it so many times. I, it's, a, it's a book I often give to people uh, when I want to like, share you know, something that's inspired me. So I, ended up, so I ended up in the end of the 90s graduating school, you know, and I ended up working for a tech company in Denmark, a CRM company. In a, it was a small startup company called uh, CRM House Denmark. Um, and, and the job was just awful. It was so boring. You know, I thought my life was going to go into technology and be this crazy, exciting adventure. And it ended up feeling like factory work. You know, here there was no passion. People would show up for work at you know, eight o'clock, they take their half hour for lunch and then exactly at four o'clock or so, they look at the clock and say, okay, now we're leaving. And I'm just like, this is not what I thought my life was going to be like at all. There's no passion. There's no like, let's 
work you know, crazy together to make something magical happen that will change the world. And so after a couple of months of this, I just thought to myself, this sucks. This is not what I want my life to be. And I, I always had this driving thought, maybe it came from my, my, my parents, that I don't want my life to be lived in fear of, of, or regret. And so I thought to myself, I don't want to look back on my life when I'm 60, 70 years old and say to myself, you know, I could have had the chance to go to Silicon Valley uh, in the height of the dot-com era, uh, but I was too scared to do it. You know, I don't want to have the could have, would have, should have uh, mindset. And so I'd rather just you know, step into the unknown and take a chance on something. So I quit my job and I bought a one-way ticket to California. Uh, real quick, let me let me pause you real quick right there. So before you decided to do that, what do you think was the biggest uh, driving force of fear like in, in, in that was holding you back from doing that? Obviously, you chose to do that, but leading up to it, what do you think was like the biggest? Was it failing? Was it family pressure? Was it you said you mentioned, and I hope this is not inappropriate, but you mentioned you didn't necessarily grow up in a very wealthy household. So was it wanting a steady job? I mean, what was it that was kind of the driving force behind fear? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a good question. Um, I think to me it was at that point in time. You know, this is and in, in, this was in '99, end of '99. It just felt so far away. You know, I was in Denmark at the time in Copenhagen and. You know, just at that point in time, I think now, you know, global travel has become so much easier. Technology has connected us all in, in amazing ways. But at that point in time, Matt, it just felt so far. I did, I'd never been to California. I didn't have a job there. I didn't know a single person there. And it just felt like, okay, I needed money to, to be able to make it. And so I think there was a lot of things stopping me. And yeah, yeah, I definitely had some fear of like failure. Absolutely. Like, what if I go and I don't succeed, you know? Uh, like how embarrassing will that be, you know, for, for all the people who, who believe in me. But then I thought again, that, that, that driving thought about, you know, I don't want to look back on my life and have the regret of not daring to do it. Uh, and so I gathered everything I could. I sold everything that I had and I bought that one way ticket to California and I came February 1st, 2000. And, uh, you know, I was staying in a, I rented a, a room in a holiday inn down by San Jose airport. And I, you know, that, that was not going to last me very long. I had $2,000 and I figured at that point in time, it would last me probably two months. And I figured if I don't get a job within those two months, I'll head back to Denmark. You know, Denmark's a safe, secure, very, very like uh, calm country. I can always go back, but I wanted to try it. And at that point in time, again, this is, this is at the height of the dot-com era. Everybody was hiring in Silicon Valley, everybody. And so I just applied for a shitload of jobs pardon my French, on Craigslist. And oh, yeah. Swear, swearing is definitely... Totally <laughs> oh, yeah. You're good. You're good. <laughs> so I, so I apply for a shitload of jobs on Craigslist. And honestly, in the first two weeks, I had about 15 job interviews. Now, having never been to California, I didn't know the size of the Bay Area. So jumping around from interview to interview between San Jose, San Francisco, and everything in between proved to be quite stressful. But I didn't really care. <laughs> you, you, tra you travel the way I do. I'm, I'm like... When I, when I go to like the East Coast, I'm like... Hey, Boston friends, I'm in, I'm in New York City. You guys want to hang out? And they're like, yeah, that's four hours away. <laughs> exactly. When I go to California, I'll go to San Francisco for a few days. Like all my San, or LA friends. Hey, you guys want to come hang out? Yeah, it's six hours away. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so I, I interviewed with about 15 companies. Um, and, you know, even though it was stressful, I was having the time of my life. I felt like I was an adventure. It was just so much fun. And at the end of those two weeks, I got two job offers. And all the, the, the interviews I went for was as a programmer, as a, as a web designer, webmaster, web programmer, is that what it was called back then. 
and I ended up getting two offers, you know, from two companies. And I ended up taking a job with a small company called Streaming 21 in Los Gatos that was doing streaming audio and video for the B2B segment. And I just thought, wow, actually, you know, it, it feels weird to say it now, but I, I remember thinking back, that wasn't that hard. <laughs> like I had all this fear pent up inside of me about, you know, the struggles I would have. And you know, I got a job fairly because everybody was hiring. So that was that was the first month. And then a month later, I kid you not, the whole market crashed. And that was the start of just the, one of the most vicious cycles I've been through. Every company was going through layoffs and downturns and bankruptcies and shutting down. And it was it was pretty brutal. But was this like this was like 2000, 2001 now? It was 2000. So in March. So I came February 1st, 2000. And in mid-March of 2000, uh, a month and a half later, the whole market crashed. But I had a job, you know, uh, it, the company didn't make it, unfortunately, <laughs> but at least I, I, I got a landing there uh, in, in some way. And that job, I had a great mentor, uh, the VP of marketing, who was my boss. Her name was Elise Simmerman. And she just took me under her wing and she mentored me and went, I, mean, I was 21 at the time. I didn't really have much experience or, or, or much, you know, uh, both life experience or work experience. And, and she really took me under her wing and and showed me the ways of, of what great marketing could be and the paths in marketing you could take and and i credit her today a lot with you know the path i ended up taking which was through product marketing you know there are many paths you can take uh, in marketing and product marketing and b2b is one of the more common ones and she showed me that path and so i'm forever grateful for her for, for doing that and it's always given me matt this this notion of paying it forward whenever i try to hire i try to hire for grit and aptitude and passion and energy. A lot of things that doesn't necessarily come through in a resume or on somebody's LinkedIn profile. Um, but hiring for those things, you know, oftentimes means that you'll hire somebody who will go above and beyond to prove that they belong and that they can do the work that's required of them to be successful. And I love taking a chance on those people. Well, you know, it's so, it's so, it's a complete just breath of fresh air to hear you say that because that kind of that principle was kind of exactly the startup that I wedged that I founded was kind of founded on that. I mean, it was the idea that yes, a resume, you know, it, it I could create arguments of why I think it's completely irrelevant and not important. And I hate resumes yeah. with all with a burning passion, but there is some importance to it. But course, at the yeah. end of the day, like if you can dive deeper into a better understanding of who that person is, what they can do and yeah. you know what they're motivated by, that's to me, I think so much, so much more important. And the fact that yeah. that has, you know, come full circle in your life because somebody obviously saw that in you. And then now you want to take and multiply that with all the people that you interact with. That's just, freaking awesome. And on that note, I texted Wade Burgess right before we hopped on. He texted back and said a big hello to you. And also you are a breath of fresh air. And he was excited that we were chatting. So I love love Wade. Wade Wade is also just an awesome inspirational leader who's always doing his best to give it back. And so, you know, you and I have such a similar mindset about just paying it for now. Of course, you know, it it all depends on, on the situation. If you're going to hire a VP to lead in a critical function. Yeah, you, you got to make sure that the person can actually do the job and they have some experience. But when you're hiring somebody who, you know, is more of an individual contributor, like we all have been at some point in our lives, you know, take a chance on somebody. You know, it doesn't matter if they went to some fancy school, if they feel entitled and they're not going to do the work. You know, I, I'm such a fan of actually taking a chance on somebody who will come in because oftentimes they really, I've seen it time again, they will really go above and beyond because they, you can tell they have a burning desire within them to just prove themselves to the world. 
I love that. I totally agree. I mean, there's certainly time and place that like a technical requirement needs to come first. And no. no matter how burning the passion may be for somebody, you know, sometimes there's just a hard requirement of what they need or what they don't need. But, you know, when you have that opportunity to take a chance on somebody and they, they, you know, even if they fail in different ways, but they are just driven to, you know, prove themselves right and prove other people right too. I just think uh, something magical happens in that. Totally. totally. All right. So you... At some point, have you written a book? I have not written a book, but I, it is on my list, actually. I, uh, I I have thought about maybe starting one here in 2021. Well, at some point, let's take that offline. We should talk about that. But I think the fact that like I, where I think there's such a, a, a book here is that obviously you read so many stories about that person who took the risk and everything panned out and everything went amazing. And, you know, it was the perfect story in La La Land, which is, which is amazing. Don't get me wrong. Definitely inspiration. But the fact that you left the comfort of Denmark took the risk to move uh, out of like fear of regret and just the excitement of moving to, you know, San Francisco. And then all of a sudden kind of the worst happened. And the fact that you still have a smile about that, the fact that you can laugh about that and the fact that you've obviously had such a remarkable career, which we're going to get into. I think that's the story that people need to hear. The fact that like, let's say the worst does happen. You still will get through it. And so anyways, I, I, I want to encourage you that I think that's book worthy in my opinion, but <laughs> well, thank you. I'll, I'll definitely, uh, you can, you can be one of the per- people who, uh, who write on my jacket cover. How's that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Happy to. <laughs> <laughs> Would love that. All right. So, so, so the, the, the 2000, 2000 bubble crashed, uh, you, you had a mentor that took you under your wing. Kind of what happens next? Yeah. So, so, you know, that company folded, I ended up going to a different company at the end of 2000 called persistent software, about 200 people or so. But at this point in time, the, the the recession was really picking up steam. I mean, it was it was brutal. For those of you who didn't live through it, I mean, it was every single day companies were folding. Thousands of people were losing their jobs every single day. All the big tech companies were doing layoffs. And so I joined a company called Persistent Software. I thought, okay, hopefully this will be a little bit more stable. It's a little bit bigger. Nope. Three months later, the whole company kind of went under. So that was just like, wow, it was really a wake-up call. But during those three months, I'd become good friends with uh, one of the people at the company who ran analyst relations because I was doing product marketing. So we worked hand in hand and, and through her, I'd met her husband who worked at a company called Veritas. And that was one of the few companies in this really dark time that we saw in the tech world that was still growing and was still kind of growing in a steady clip, you know, 20, 25% year over year, they're still hiring. And so he said, you know, you should come interview. We're actually expanding the product marketing team. Maybe we can find a fit for you. And so I did, and I ended up joining that company and I ended up being there for, for quite a long time, just about, I think, just over four, four years, four and a half years or so. And that's where I would say, you know, because I'd only been in the other two companies for like a, a year or so. So that's really where I, I got my start in product marketing, you know, really honed my craft. I had a great mentor there named Sean Aquino and Glenn Simon, and they, they really showed me the ropes about what product marketing was all about. I learned how to do kind of technical B2B product marketing. This company, Veritas, Honestly, the technology is pretty boring. They do backup software, disaster recovery software. So if you can do interesting marketing around that, oh my God, you're a hero. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, that sounds really exciting. Um, I really hope you put together some remarkable, happy, positive videos because uh, I'm not, you know. <laughs> but a couple of good things. So I learned, uh, you know, I stayed there throughout, you know, the the dark times of the recession. I met my wife there. So that was a, that was a huge, huge uh 
bonus of actually going to that company and we're still married today. So, so that's, that's a good sign. Yeah. I'd say that's a win. Congrats. 17 years later. Um, and then w- with that company, you know, I, we, we were starting to talk about going to Europe and being closer to my family and friends in Denmark. So in 2004, actually with Veritas, we moved to the UK and my son was then born in the UK. We lived here for about six years in, in, in the UK in a place called Windsor, just outside of London. And it was while I was in the UK that I ended up joining Salesforce. Um, and, you know, I've been, I've been admiring Salesforce for a long time. I always thought the company was just so cool. They were cutting edge. I love the CEO, Mark Benioff. I think he's a true visionary who really cares about progress. He's very progressive. He, he's a visionary in the industry. And it's just there's so much to learn from him and the team. And about that point in time, I think the company was about a thousand people, maybe a little bit, a little bit bigger. And I joined in 2007 to, to uh, be part of the product marketing team in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And based on the success that I, that I had there with Salesforce growing the product and the company in the region, at the end of 2009, I moved back with Salesforce to San Francisco to lead product marketing for one of their product lines called Chatter. And I would say that was really when I saw my career really take off. You know, it, it had been going great until then, the first decade of like the, the, the 2000s, being at Veritas and being at Salesforce and a bunch of other small startup companies. But, but I'd say at Salesforce, because I was surrounded by a visionary CEO, I was surrounded by people in marketing who I would classify as the Navy SEALs of marketing. They're just the best of the best. You know, they are so good at what they do. They're always pushing the boundaries of what's possible. They're telling great, compelling human stories. And that's why I would say my, both my skill set and my career really took off when I was at Salesforce. And it was that that gave me the the springboard to go and do all the other things since then. You know, a lot of people still look at that time in Salesforce. We grew from, I think, 1,000 people to about 8,000 people or so in just over four years. Massive growth. And me being the leader for, for this product called Chatter really gave me a lot of visibility, both within Salesforce, but certainly also within the industry that I could use to capitalize on wherever I went next. Do you um do you think you default towards so like uh when when you were you you mentioned visionary is like an attribute that was obviously super attractive to you would you say you default towards more visionary or more uh operation execution It's a great question it's something I've actually been thinking thinking a lot about because you know if you look at the the, the companies I've been a part of you know there's some of them most of them actually have been very visionary so I would say I for for me personally I love working for CEOs who have incredible vision, but certainly also knows how to execute on that vision. So, so take, let's take some examples. Working at Salesforce with Mark Benioff, an incredible visionary. Then I went to Box working for Aaron Levy, incredible visionary. Um, and then, you know, I've, after that, I went to a startup company uh, called Vera. And then, of course, I went to LinkedIn. Um, and LinkedIn, I think, is kind of the opposite of what you just, you know, it's, it's, it's more on the operational side. I think Jeff Weiner is an incredible CEO. I don't know if he's the most visionary, but he's certainly one of the most operationally gifted CEOs I've ever experienced in my life. You know, and so either one works totally fine. But for somebody like me, I, w- I don't know if that was a, if that was something, a place where I could thrive the most. And me- meaning because a lot of the company was infused with so much, I would say, management and data thinking, where I tend to align myself a little bit more with leaders that are a little bit more intuitive around what it is that they, the stories that they want to put out in the world. And so 
Well, I like, I love my time at LinkedIn, the incredible team, you know, great product. I use a platform every single day. Um, I don't know if the culture was honestly a perfect match for me or my skill set, uh, which is also why I then ended up going to, to a company that, that was, that was WeWork at the time. And, you know, again, you're know, going back to somebody who is such a visionary. I mean, Adam had a vision to change the world through the physical spaces that we inhabit both at work and how we live and how we exercise and all those different things. Now you could certainly argue, and I think there's a lot of good data that shows that the execution wasn't necessarily there. And that's a different story, but, but he was certainly more on the visionary front. I mean, he, he was not, I did not think he was the strongest operator, but he certainly was an incredible visionary. So I think you've rattled off maybe five or six visionary leaders and then Jeff Weiner being more of a, um, operational focus. So specifically thinking into the um, visionary, would you say those individuals have that vision kind of from within, or do you think it's external market uh, influence that causes kind of the visions that they have or where they want to go? Not visions in the sense of like arbitrary, like, oh, I had this vision sort of thing, but more like the direction of an organization. Is that sort of self-induced or do you think it's external markets or external interests that are pushing that? It's, it's a great question. I think the, the, there are people who are constantly seeking out um, the future and they're constantly thinking about the future and they're constantly surrounding themselves with people who are thinking about the future. And I think, you know, if you look at all those people that I that I just talked about, you know, Mark Benioff being friends with Steve Jobs and many other people who are visionaries, but not just in the field of tech, but also in the field outside of tech, spiritual gurus and people who are visionary artists in other fields, music, movies, you name it, constantly seeking people who are pushing the boundaries, right? And I also think those people naturally just had this curiosity for what was the future going to look like in five, 10, 20 years or so. I think that that's a common trait between all of those visionaries I was just talking about. Benioff and Levy and Adam Newman. Um, and then, you know, I think somebody like, like a Wiener was much, Jeff Wiener was much more thinking about how do I make this company operate as successfully and as smoothly as possible? Again, you know, in, in a way that is constantly putting out products that we can be proud of in the current present moment. That doesn't, that's, don't get me wrong. That's not to say that Jeff Wiener was not, a, doesn't have any visionary instincts about him. He probably, he, I think you have to as a CEO, uh, but I don't think that was his strongest one. He surrounded himself with visionaries who could execute on some of the visionary aspects. But him himself, I, I would classify him as that that operational mind. So to answer your question, I think a lot of it comes from these external stimuli that these these different visionaries would seek. You know, for Adam Newman, I think a lot has been documented again, also by the people he surrounded himself with. You know, both visionaries, artists. Maybe there was some. Uh, some some weed involved and some alcohol involved. Oh yeah, yeah. Little, little, when you said external substances, you mean uh, you know maybe maybe a little outside influence. Exactly. <laughs> well, no, it's 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 um it's really interesting, and it's also kind of applicable to my current life circumstance too, because I would say I err uh, not putting myself in comparison to those guys at all. But in in the grand scheme of operations versus vision, I are on the side of vision. Whereas our CTO who built the product of Wedge and our COO who runs a lot of our operations and support uh, are very practical, in the moment execution type people. And so I I find myself, oddly enough, like butting heads in in a remarkable way with them all the time, because it's like, this is the direction that I want to see things going. And they're kind of like, yeah, but we're working on the last thing that you talked about two months ago or last week and putting that into place. And so it's just, it's been really fun, challenging, and awesome to 
balance those things of how do you execute and appropriately do things that need to get done while also having your head up to the direction of which you need to be going and how you can accomplish both, be a visionary company that also executes really well. I think it's just, I, I don't know, if you can figure that out, I think you're doing something right. That's, I'm the, that's the magic of, of where, where it all happens, the serendipity, because if you surround yourself with people who will push you and think differently than you, I think that's where a lot of the magic happens. When you just surround yourself with people who think the same, I don't think you're going to get challenged in, in a positive way necessarily. And I think about that's true of a CEO. So if you have Jeff Weiner who was really strong operationally, he surrounded himself with really great visionaries. And of course, the same with Benioff. I mean, Salesforce would not become the powerhouse that it is today if Benioff did not surround himself with incredible operators at all levels of the company. And, you know, it's, it's true of any leadership role. I think of myself as a, as a CMO, you know, I would say, you know, of all the different disciplines in marketing, there's some that I'm really strong at and there's some that I definitely have a lot to learn in. Because it's just impossible for any leader to be great at everything. So you have to surround yourself with people who will push you, who will compliment you, who will who will add things to the mix in the skill set department that you just don't have. I love that. So what drew you to LinkedIn originally? Well, so LinkedIn has been a platform that honestly I've used uh, more or less since it started, I think, in 2003. Um, and it's honestly transformed my life. It truly has. You know, I meet with great people on the platform. I read incredible content every single day. It feels like a mini TED talk when I go on there, but it's kind of in written form. So I can digest it at my own pace and it's short. Um, and of course, you know, people find me and they connect with me and they want to share their, you know, their life stories or get help or maybe even hire me for their companies or their boards and so on. So it's just been an incredible transformative force in my life and I use it every single day. So when I had the opportunity to join, I was very excited about, about joining that company. And I still love it today, even though I'm not there any, any, anymore, I still love LinkedIn as the most positive platform because it's very, because people have their real profiles on there um, and they're, it's, the, it's kind of a professional network. People really put pride in what they put on there. There's not a lot of garbage. I feel like you know, in Twitter, you can find a lot of great things, but there's also a lot of garbage on there. Same on Facebook, I feel there's a lot of garbage on there as well. But on, on LinkedIn, they've kept it very pure. And the, the positivity I see and the support from the community is incredible. And the reason I love it is just, just I always think that we're better uh, as humans when we are together and where we're sharing each other's insights and learnings and energy and everything else. And LinkedIn is a great platform, a digital platform for that. And the reason why I think the vision behind WeWork was so strong is because to me, WeWork could have been a physical manifestation of what LinkedIn was all about. This idea that we're better together, you know, the idea behind WeWork was always that if we can get people and companies into an office and share that office together and get to know each other, it becomes this incredible multiplying effect because you can start meeting people and companies who will make your skill set and your company even better. And I just love that vision. And so I think the world still needs it, whether or not it'll be WeWork or some other company, They'll manifest that vision. Who knows? I'm, I'm not uh, trying to make a prediction there, but the world definitely, I think, is stronger and happier when we're all together and we're actually sharing in each other's, I think, you know, knowledge and skills and everything else. And one of the things I've learned, you know, um, just in the last couple of decades is that you can find common ground with pretty much any person on the planet. You know, even if you come from wildly different 
life backgrounds, political backgrounds, religious backgrounds, it doesn't really matter if you can always find some kind of commonality. Because guess what, Matt? Everybody wants happiness and success and health, and they want the same for their friends and their family and their kids. And so there's always something we can find common ground on. And that gives me immense hope for the future that we will overcome the challenges that we have. And I think LinkedIn and other platforms are a key conduit to making that happen. You know, it's it's so encouraging to hear you say that because that's kind of the goal of this podcast is like, yes, it's uh, like I mentioned, it's very fulfilling work for me and it's very fun and positive and I get to learn a ton from some amazing people like yourself. And But the other the other piece to it is that I think the goal of the podcast is to share wildly different life stories. I mean, there's we I've had teachers, I've had uh, you know, Fortune 500 executives, I've had athletes, I've had you know the co-founders of Barefoot Wine to Henrik Fisker who founded Electric Vehicles. Mm-hmm. Not anything from an accolade perspective, but such various different life backgrounds. Who, if you put all these people in a room, I'm sure there's going to be tons of arguments because they totally disagree about so many different things. But at the same time, they're living like purpose-driven lives and they're living lives that are fulfilling. And hopefully, at some point in time, somebody who's maybe lost or confused or maybe lacking a little bit of direction can pick one of those stories and say, oh, if that person can do it, I can too. And so right. I just, I, I don't know, I, I I totally agree in the sense that I think no matter what, if you are allowing your mind to be open, you can find common ground with anybody. And I, I just want to echo what you're saying in that because I completely agree. Oh, great. No, I, 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 I'm totally with you. And I mean, and, and, and you know, we, we have certainly been pushing this notion of community and humanity uh, to another level in 2020, because you know, that was really a, t- a test for us. And I can't, I mean, part of me is so excited about what's happening online and how we're connecting digitally across time zones and barriers and everything else. But I'm also really excited to get back to a world where we can actually see each other face to face. I'm excited by both. Uh, and I think yeah, we're, we, we, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy into the notion that it's an either or. I just, I just fundamentally don't think that's true. I think both can be true at the same time. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was about to say our, our business is actually kind of doing the opposite of everybody. We're actually getting a home base and a headquarters, obviously COVID safe and COVID sensitive, but the magic of just being together, we've been remote for three or four years and the magic of just bringing people together. I think there's, but, but at the same time, you know, with, with the remote world and zoom and LinkedIn, I mean, you make the world a lot smaller. You and I would never connect in person. Right. But right. the fact that we're able to do this through a podcast and we're in two totally different countries, I think is the remarkable thing about making the world a little bit smaller. I mean, so. There's no, there's no doubt that, that the, the future of work has changed forever and, and good riddance for that. You know, it was probably ch- time for a big shakeup. You know, I think the people have not been fulfilled or happy enough. And I think we're going to see a big momentum in how people are going to live their lives going forward, which is great. But the future work doesn't mean that it's either or either everybody's together or everybody's, you know, remote. I think it's going to be a hybrid. I really do because people love being together. Everyone I talk to, everyone simply says, I can't wait for us to get back together. Maybe not all the time. Maybe it's more optional. Maybe it's once a quarter or once a month or whenever you choose to, to do it. But people definitely miss being each other. There's something magical that happens when we're all in the same room that we can look each other in the eye and feel the, the energy. And then at the same token, you know, this, this notion of having freedom to work when and how you want, as long as you deliver the results, is also super magical. And so when people say, you know, oh, this is the way of the future, but you're only going to work remote. I'm always like, there's no way that's going to be it. You know, the reason, nope. the reason this is happening now is because we didn't have a choice. Like, thank God that we had Zoom and Slack and all these other technologies because we could actually keep the world functioning somewhat, even during this very dark time that we went through. 
but it's not like anybody chose this. And so the world will swing back to a place where we also can get together and, 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 and be together because there's a lot of magic that happens when that comes true. It's so true. That's so good. Um, so I want to, I want to obviously whatever you're comfortable sharing here a little bit about the WeWork story as well too. Uh, you obviously joined at the height of it yep. and then dealt with some of the, the the public crashing down of it. So whatever obviously you're comfortable sharing, I, I'd love to hear kind of that perspective of you joining. And then maybe one question I'd love to ask you kind of throughout this is, you know, f- what would you say were kind of the key levers that made we work so positive and then maybe the key levers that were pulled that maybe had, you know, part of the hand that forced it down. So I'd love, I, again, just want to be cautious of whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, but I would say, I mean, I mean so there's, there's a lot to unpack here and, and let me just cover a few things. So I joined at the end of 2018 and, you know, just at the height of of the hype cycle around uh, around WeWork. And it was incredible company joining. I mean, there was so many incredible, so much incredible talent going to WeWork from all over the world, from all industries. There was just momentum happening in the company. And so I joined um, and my first job there really was to think about how could I unify the team? You know, WeWork had grown so organically, so crazy fast that there was very little, honestly, structure to how the company was being run, at least at the marketing level, probably also in many of the other departments. But when I came in, marketing was literally split over, I think it was six or seven different teams. You had got the regional teams who reported into certain certain uh, leaders. You got some some marketing under finance, some under our you know one of our founders. You know, and, and it was just like it was completely chaos. And I remember having this conversation with Adam, where I said to him, "You're never going to see great marketing um, when the whole team is working on different goals." I always think. One of the, the, the best ways to actually lead a team is when you unify and you have common common goals between everyone. Because not only is collaboration hard if you have different teams with different goals, it's impossible. It's literally impossible because everyone's going to be chasing different things if they have different goals and, and different things that they're, they're, they're different KPIs and so on. So you have to unify. And not only that, that's also how you create a great brand. No brand, no brand ever became great if it was fractured. You don't go and see Nike or Patagonia or Apple having wildly different interpretations of their brand in all the different regions or different segments of the market and so on. And that was what was happening at WeWork. You know, if, if I showed you this crazy like slide deck I remember seeing about how our brand was being represented in all the different regions that we had, it just looks like a hodgepodge of, of stuff. And so the goal was to, in the beginning, to unify the team, unify the vision, unify our KPIs. Um, and, and that worked well because everybody was eager to actually make some real difference because everyone was doing very good tactical work, but there was very little happening that was unified or collaboratively strong. So we, we, we unified the team. So that was kind of the first step. And then we optimized kind of how people work would play in that, in that new team that we formed. Of course, when you have that many people come together, it was over 400 people in marketing. Yeah, you're going to have some overlap and some duplication. You're going to make sure that people know what their role is and their swim lanes and roles and responsibilities and everything else. But once we figured that out, it was all about execution. How do we then execute toward the goals that we have? And in a company like WeWork, where you had such a passion for the story and the impact of what the company could do, People would get up every day. They were fired up. They'd work like crazy. They'd, you know, be creative about what they, we could do as a company. So all of those things, I think, worked really well. And the the thing I think one of the things that definitely was the hard thing to deal with was just the, the incredible growth, which of course in many ways is a great thing, but also really was pushing the the 
the company and the teams to the breaking point, you know, because like every day was just kind of a crazy ride. I mean, I was only at rework for a year and I would say it's probably the most intense year of my entire life. You know, every day was like, how can we go bigger and faster and more? Because this company was going through such crazy growth. And the year I was there, it went from 10,000 people to 15,000 people. It's just immense amount of hiring and new people coming in and new cities we were opening. And in hindsight, when I think about one of the things that we probably should have gotten better at and more under control as a leadership team and as a company is just staying hyper-focused. It's great having a vision of what the future could be for the company. You know, we want to impact people's lives at work and at home and through their fitness, through their schooling, through their education, through you name it. But, you know, you can start doing all those different things when you have stability in the core. And there wasn't enough stability in the core of the WeWork um, product, which was, you know, office space, yet to go and do all these kind of micro projects. And it started fracturing just too much. And I think it's, it ended up, you know, diluting the core effort of building a great company around WeWork because we had all these sub-brands or other brands that we were trying to also make come to life. And that was part of the ambition of the founders is like we wanted to have, they wanted to have this impact across everything, which is a noble ambition, but you wait until you have stability and quality. I kind of liken it to what Google did with Google X and many of their projects. Because Google had this cash cow of money coming in all the time in the core product, it was stable. They knew exactly what, how much money they were making. Uh, they could go and take a chance on all these other things. But WeWork wasn't at that point in time. Yet they were still trying to get stability in the core and growing the core. And so I think if they'd probably stayed a little bit more focused, it would have helped the overall mission and the brand of the company. So how do you, you know, that's, that's a fascinating question. And I think as a visionary entrepreneur, one can get lost in too much of the future of what it could be and then sort of lead that way. So you jump around, bop around, try a bunch of different things. How do you balance, uh, you know, the difference of having a ton of different ideas and wanting to try those different ideas in the midst of sort of the product market stage, you know, finding that true product market. So like, how do you balance the time and the place and the reasoning behind a pivot versus we need to, we need to maintain a level of focus and sort of grind this out until we've proven out and then we can try those things. You stay focused on the core. Meaning, so in, in WeWork's case, um, you stay focused on the core, which was office space. And there's so much you can do around office space. You can add experiences. You can add upsell opportunities. You can have new products introduced as part of that experience. Maybe it's faster internet. Maybe it's, you know, you know, more flexible space, more flexible options, all kinds of things. You can innovate like crazy around the core. But once you start innovating and opening up new ventures that are not part of the core, you start losing focus. You know, People will get a little confused about what you stand for and what you do. Uh, you start, you know, maybe getting a little bit ahead of your skis in terms of your effort. You might spend a lot of money on things that are not really relevant, again, to the core. So I think you have to stay hyper-focused on the core. Look at, you know, Salesforce in the early days or Box, you know, Box was all about incredible file sharing, making that an elegant, you know, integrated experience across your, your, how you work. And they innovated like crazy across that, but it was all around the core of file sharing. File sharing was the core thing. At Salesforce, it was at that point in time, CRM system. So Chatter that I led was an add-on to the CRM system. That's what made Chatter powerful. Chatter on its own was not that great. You know, it competed against Slack and Jive and Yammer and so on at that point in time. But as part of an integration with a CRM system, it was incredibly powerful, the most powerful, because it was part of the core. So I think until you reach that escape velocity and you have so much stability in the core, focus on what you can do around the core. 
Yeah, I love that. That's that's good advice and also uh, kind of a smack to the face for what I need to hear every once in a while too, so thank you. <laughs> Feel free to send me your invoice for the consulting. <laughs> I'm sure you have a ton of ideas that you want to go oh, with. It's a, it's a problem. It's a problem for sure. All right, so tell me more about what you're working on now. I know you've kind of stepped into the, a little bit of the venture capital and angel investing space, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you got going on now. Yeah, so for the last couple of years, I've been doing you know advisory work and mentorship with with cool entrepreneurs that I meet, and and I love doing that because part of my thing is how can I give back as much as I can to the next generation of entrepreneurs. A lot of times, I don't really you know it's not to to gain anything in in, in return. It's just because I enjoy the process of it. And I learn as much as hopefully they do from me. So it's 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 a true joy. And I've also joined a VC firm in Denmark called by founders. I'm not like part of it day to day. I'm what's called part of the collective. You know, they have this, the whole thesis is surround the, the VC firm with the best entrepreneurs who are connected to Denmark or the Nordic ecosystem and help the next generation of Nordic entrepreneurs be successful. So I you know, meet with some companies in the portfolio every now and then to give marketing or go to market advice and so on. So that's kind of like a little bit of a side hustle. But my, my full-time job is as chief marketing officer at a company called Matterport. And at Matterport, we're, we're scanning and indexing every single space and building in the built world. And we have done that with billions and billions of square feet of space, museums, supermarkets, houses. If you go on Redfin and you try to buy a house, a lot of times, you know, the tours that you'll see are from Matterport. It can be galleries, it can be schools, you name it. And, and, you know, I joined at the end of March, so during the pandemic. So I haven't met anybody in my team in person, which has been a little weird. And so I started remotely in Silicon Valley. And now I'm double remote because I'm here in Denmark, which is, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I'm remote times remote, as I like to say. But, um, but so, I, so I, I am the chief marketing officer of this company. We're about 250 people. You know, we have a global presence. And our goal and our vision is really to empower anybody to use any device that they have, their phone in their pocket, an iPhone or an Android, to be able to scan and share their space in 3D. So, you know, I've scanned my office here where I'm working from and I've shared it to the world. It's really kind of fun to walk through. And it's not like a, you know, just enhanced pictures. This is a fully immersive 3D tour. And the future is completely 3D. If you think about how we've gone from the written word to 2D photos, the next generation of experiences is all 3D because it's so much more immersive. You know, seeing a photo online of, of a you know an Airbnb or a house you want to buy is just not the same as being able to walk through it and feel the flow and the energy and the light come through and so on. And so 3D is such a revolution and, and our mission is to make it accessible to any company or any individual anywhere in the world. And I like how, uh, given the conversation we've had over the last hour, you you were able to very clearly articulate like what the vision is for that. Like that's that there. There's so many different directions I'm sure you can go, but you boil it down to one sentence. It's like I get it. This makes complete sense, and everything else. I, I love that. That's um, after that. We're going to take offline, but I got somebody to connect you with as well too that may be helpful on that. But um, so so for you, given your stage of where you're at now, are you like? Is your goal to stick with one company and grind it out to see it reach a certain point? Or are you trying to, you know, still soak up and join as many different companies as you can and learn as much as you What's sort of the, the next stage vision for your career? It's, it's a great question. So I love what we do. I love this, this. I chose this size of company and this mission very purposefully. I love the impact. So I choose, I choose my, my career based on the impact and the purpose and the mission of what we're trying to do. I love the mission of trying to index 
the entire built world. You know? So like if, if, if you can give anybody anywhere access to any space in the world. So if you're sitting, you know, somewhere, let's say in Singapore or in Sydney, and you want to be able to visit a museum in the US, you can do so just by the magic of our technology. So I love that it democratizes access to space and also knowledge and learning. I mean, I can send you the Rosa Parks Museum that you can go visit and learn the history of of the civil rights movement there. And this is so much, much great learning to be had. So I love the purpose of what we're trying to do. And I also love the size of the company. You know, it's really fun going into a company that's in the growth stage. So it's not a teeny company, you know, that's just kind of like trying to figure out its product market fit. We have great product market fit. We have a great team. We have an incredible leadership team. I love our CEO. And, you know, we would really see eye to eye on how we're going to grow the company. And so I'm in it for the long term. I really want to take this company all the way, whatever that means, you know, whether that's an IPO or an acquisition or just becoming a, a mega successful company that stays private. Who knows? I just, I'm having a lot. I'm having so much fun because I feel like what we're doing is really making a difference in the world. And I get that all the time when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, they're saying, you know, we're using your technology to help us reopen our office or to help scan our school classroom so our kids can feel safe when they come in. I'm just like, you know what? That's worth fighting for. I've always liked a mission that's worth fighting for. And so for me, yeah, absolutely. I want to take this company all the way. I didn't get to do it with uh, with WeWork, unfortunately. Uh, and so I absolutely love to take this company all the way. And so I'm excited to do that. I love that. So as you talked about sort of very purpose-driven work with this company, I want to broaden that and say for Robin, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What's ultimately like if I were to met you, say, for, you know, hypothetically for an hour on a podcast and you were to leave one influence on my life that you got to decide, what would that be? And also, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, it's two things. For me, it's the, the opportunity to make a difference in the world. Um, and that's through the, the talents that I know are unique to me. And so that's my passion, my leadership and my knowledge of how do I connect with people using the technology that we have. I love that. And so that is super important to me. That's kind of number one, like the, the, using my unique talents in the world. And everybody, I believe, has unique talents. You got to find your, your power and you got to figure out what it is and you got to do everything you can to give that back to the world because the world will be an immensely better place once you unlock that within yourself. And then the second thing for me that gets me out of bed in the morning is just the, the ability to work with incredible people every day who, I, who inspire me and who I learn a ton from and who make me better and who I have a lot of fun with. I always think of it this way. I want to wake up. I want to make a difference. I want to certainly, you know, do something great in the world, but I also want to have a lot of fun doing it. And this team that I'm surrounded myself with at all levels of the company, both my team, my peers, you know, my leader, those are the people who fit that bill that we have, you know, we work, we work really with a lot of purpose, but we also have a lot of fun in doing it. And that's worth fighting for as well. That's, so special. And I am slightly jealous and hopefully am, am aspiring, aspiring to build a, a, a business that, you know, people can speak about and feel that way while working here as well, too. So I, I love that. And that's that's such a deeper thing than just obviously the profit side of things, which keeps everything afloat. But it's I, that's special stuff um, for, for people that want to reach out to you, connect with you, get to know you, uh, learn more about your business. What's the best way for them to either get a hold of you or contact you or uh, reference any of your work? Absolutely. The best way to contact me is through LinkedIn. Just search for Robin Daniels. Um, and if you add in Matterport or Rework, I'm probably the only one that comes up. <laughs> Love that. Robin, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thanks, Matt. It was so much fun. Thanks, man.
you just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su- subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well, too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.